down to earth on News Talk with a Monday, an asset manager investing in tomorrow today to shape a better world for all. This is Down to Earth with me, Dr. Cara Augustenborg, News Talk's dedicated program about our natural environment and how we address the limits of our planet's resources. From climate change to species extinction, we cover the toughest challenges here with leading experts and celebrated thinkers. You'll hear diverse views as we try to find common ground in how to fix our most pressing global crises. On the show today, we go in praise of trees to find out if forestry really is the solution to our environmental problems. Kieran Fallon, Marina Conway, and Jim Lawler discuss the future of Ireland's forests. Graham Fox explains Amundi's new initiative to plant trees in County Wicklow. And Professor Michael Mann is my guest this week for My Green Life as he talks about standing up in the face of climate deniers for over 20 years. It's time to head down to earth, but we would also love to hear from you. Would you like to see a return of our ancient forests, or do you prefer the patchwork quilt of green fields we have? You can email us at downtoearth at newstalk.com. But now it's time to discuss the role of forestry in Ireland and what we want it to deliver. And my guests today all have their own vision on how to do that. Karen Fallon is the director of Quilch and Nature. Marina Conway is the CEO of Western Forestry Cooperative. And Jim Lawler is the chair of Native Woodlands Trust. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hi, great to be here. Great to have you. Let's start with the big picture when it comes to forestry in Ireland. So 80% of the island was forested in the 16 and 1700s. And then tragically, almost all of it was completely deforested in the 1800s. And in the 1900s, then the state began reforesting. And now we've gotten it up to about 12% of the country under trees. And the government has a policy to get it up to 18% between now and 2050. So I think that means planting about 22 million trees a year over the next couple decades, if I'm right. Kieran, What's driving this ambition? Well, I mean, as you've said, uh, Cara, um, when the state was formed 100 years ago, we, we virtually had no forestry. So you're, you're starting with a very young uh, forest base. Um, and I think what we have today is really the products of kind of political vision uh, in the 1930s and 1940s. You know, a very, very young state getting up off its knees and trying to grow uh, an industry from scratch effectively. Um, and then again in the 80s, another kind of vision going forward to grow private forestry in Ireland. And where we are now, I think, is we're at a really interesting um, interesting point and an inflection point where you're really looking to the future and saying, where do we want forestry to be in 2030, 2040, 2050? And you have to kind of think in those terms. You have to have that kind of far-reaching vision when you think about forestry because, well, because of the scale involved and because of the rate at which trees grow. So it's a, it's a question that's in play at the moment. Um, when, when people were thinking about forestry in the 1940s, they were thinking mainly about trying to grow uh, an, a base and industrial resource from nothing. In the 1980s, it was kind of a, an expansion again and, and the, the growth of a private sector. And it's really, it's really up for a discussion at the moment. And I think it's a really interesting conversation starting about the future uh, role of forestry. Um, and so I, th- I think we're now sorry, we're now at our highest level of afforestation in over 350 years, but yet still very, very far away from where we once were. Would you would you call it a good news story or a bad news story? Or do you think it's still to be determined? It's it's to be determined. I mean, from from where we've come in 100 years, uh, there's been a dramatic increase. And I mean, the the policy objectives of the 1940s were largely realized and, and those of the 1980s were realized. They were products of their time. So now we have to look at where we are today, look at the needs of current society and look at the, the needs of future society, try to imagine what they are and try to create a forestry for that. And, you know, in, in the past, in, in, the, in the 80s, when Quilch was formed in 1989, you know, um, uh, climate change was, uh, the IPCC had just been formed, but climate change was very much a kind of a very marginal technical uh, discourse. It wasn't in the, the public domain biodiversity loss, again, uh, barely spoken about. Times change, and it's, it's, it's a question of, um, I suppose, looking at the needs, as I say, of the present, 
and what we want to achieve in the future and the balance that we want to achieve in forestry in the future. Marina, we're still a long way off of meeting this planting rate of 22 million trees a year. I think that means planting about 8,000 hectares a year. And, and at best, we're only planting around 6,000 hectares a year uh, on average right now. So you're CEO of a cooperative that's trying to make it easier for landowners and farmers to plant trees. What's stopping us from achieving this goal? Um, hi, Cara. Yeah, actually, we're a lot less. Last year, we only achieved two and a half thousand hectares, and the year before, three and a half. And so, it's been it's been rapidly declining. And um, I guess you know, I, I think that far it's it's safe to say that farmers have lost lost confidence in the system in the licensing process. Um, and the licensing process has become extremely cumbersome. So in, in the last few years, um, relatively in the last couple of years in particular, um, it's become a very lengthy process in order for anybody to get a license um, to, to plant trees, to fell trees, to do a road, to do any of your management activities with your trees. So this, this is kind of, um, and again, as I said, we work mainly with farmers um, who are interested in the foresting parts of their own land. So I believe that the current system is not really working, and I think that we need um, regulatory reform. We need a regulatory review, um, and based on that regulatory reform, because I think it's safe to say, Cara, that the current process isn't really, it's not working for anybody. I don't believe it's working for the landowners. I don't believe it's working for st stakeholders. I don't think the government could say, could say it's working for them. Um, it's, not, it's not delivering anything that anybody is able to 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 plant trees or to manage them so it's it's regulatory reform is definitely um one of the areas that we have to look at so a lot of this extra regulation is is kind of driven by a need to protect the environment more we found out things like sitka spruce are prone to creating acidity in in water and and so more regulation is needed and jim as the chair of native woodlands trust you're tirelessly trying to preserve our last bit of remaining native woodland do you feel that these obstacles are are helping or hurting the situation well it's it's absolutely an, an imperfect process so um Obviously, we can see from from uh, uh, the perspective of the other panelists there, you know that um, th the process has become very, very cumbersome. I don't think it works for anybody at the moment. Um, obviously, we even as a as a small trust, we have the same issues. We want to plant trees, and the process that we have to go through, uh, it, you know, is very, very onerous. Uh, we also want to remove trees, so we want felling licenses to take Sitka off some of our land, so we can replace that with native woodland. Um, again long difficult process um and yes you know you see uh, reports from all over the country constantly people complaining about you know huge swathes of, of pure monoculture stands of sitka being imposed on their communities they're not happy we see environmental damage being done as well so as at the moment to, to me the process just seems very very broken and it's not um it's not working for anyone what do you think needs to be done to protect or even increase native woodland in the country well, we would like to see, a, you know, a much, much greater increase in, in the uh, proportion of native broadleaves that are actually being planted. And it sounds almost like a cliche now at this point, but the right tree in the right place, you know, is really meaningful. Um, we don't want to see what that, you know, we have seen in the past. And, uh, um, you know, while we acknowledge that the forestry policies of the past were based on, you know, a, a very, very low level of tree cover in the country. Sitka spruce seemed like the, the miracle tree that was going to grow even on bogs. And, you know, it created a timber industry in the country. Um, we're past that now. We know better. We'd like to see an awful lot more native uh, woodland planted. We'd like to see things like the native woodland scheme extended as much as possible. There are very uh, generous grants and subsidies uh, available from that scheme. Um, and, you know, when you go to... Uh, Britain and Europe and parts of Europe, an awful lot of, of coniferous species are actually native. You don't tend to see what we see in Ireland, which is an awful lot of uh, exotic species planted. You know, the vast majority of our woodland or our forest estate is exotic conifers. Um, even in places like Germany and, uh, and the Czech Republic, where they have native uh, conifer species, they don't depend so heavily on them. So we can do it here and we can still do it profitably. Kieran, in 2019, Ireland's state-owned forestry company, Quilcha, which you work for, announced the formation of this new not-for-profit wing called Quilcha Nature, and you then became the director of Quilcha Nature. So tell us what that involves and why it was done. Yeah, um, it, it really, it was recognition that Quilcha was 30 years old. So Quilcha was formed in 1989. 
before that, uh, pretty much all forestry in Ireland was, was public forestry. It was done directly by the state in by the Department of Agriculture and various uh, forms that preceded that. So in 1989, Quilcha was, uh, those assets were taken out and, and put into Quilcha. Um, and coming up to our anniversary in uh, 2019, you know, anniversaries are times for looking back and looking forward. We were looking at, you know, uh, the, the mission of the past and the things that we are expected to deliver on in the future and we need to deliver on the future. And we felt it was time to set up a not-for-profit division that was, you know, purposefully and deliberately going to focus on uh, the challenges of climate change and uh, biodiversity loss. So what it is, is it's a part of the organization division that receives uh, seed capital from the organization. And, and part of my, my job is to, is to take that and try to leverage it uh, through other sources, public and private sources, to create more impact um, around really sort of three areas. Um, the creative of a creation of new native woodlands, which Quilcha, uh, you know, has not been focused on in the past. So creating new native woodlands, we see need for that. Uh, major biodiversity programs and uh, what we call urban forests. And urban forests is really taking uh, plantations uh, that were planted in the past um, near to large urban centers where they have become uh, part of the infrastructure of these places. They've become places where people go out to recreate and experience uh, nature. And it's really uh, recognizing the, the, the very strong recreational value of these areas and converting them into uh, forests with a higher recreational and biodiversity value. So the likes of your listeners may have heard about um, the Dublin Mountains makeover where we're, we're converting 900 hectares of, of plantations around South Dublin that have effectively come, become part of the city. Uh, you know, they're, they're places that people go uh, in the evenings and weekends to, 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 to get away from the urban environment and to, to actually um, to, to convert those into, over time, into more biodiverse and uh, recreationally focused forests. So, so it's, it, it works with, with, with partnerships. Um, we, we, we work with uh, local authorities and state agencies. I hope in the future to work with uh, ENGOs like Jim's organization and private forestry companies like marinas and, and community groups on partnerships. So and given think, given that forestry establishment in, in Ireland is is predominantly funded by taxpayers, wouldn't it make sense if all of Quilcia focused on native woodland planting for the benefit of climate and biodiversity rather than having any commercial focus? Well, I, I mean, I would say uh, all of forestry is, is, is publicly funded directly by the state initially and, and uh, subsequently incentivized by combination of state and and uh, and European uh, funding so forestry is as an enterprise is very uh, heavily publicly uh, funded and I, I would agree that because it is uh, publicly funded and because it, it, it is um, so uh, prominent in our landscape and hopefully will become more prominent that it is something that people should legitimately take an interest in and their views should be absolutely taken into account. So, I mean, the, the, the role of Quilcher, Quilcher is owned by the state and it's, it, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, a state-owned company and, and, and ministers are the, the shareholders in that. So it's really two, two ministers. What I would say is, uh, in my view, it, it's all about balance. And really it's all about, you know, the long-term sustainability of, of forestry more generally is all about getting the right economic, social, environmental balance. So. You know, I, I would be, uh, I do think we're, we're at a time where uh, balance has been called for and we need to address balance. Uh, but I do think we should seek to find uh, a good balance that allows an economically viable forestry, uh, both public and private, because it's a long-term undertaking. I mean, in, in my lifetime, I've experienced three uh, full economic uh, cycles of booms and, and busts. More, hopefully, I will you know, see in the future if I live long enough. Uh, forestry needs to endure those because it's a long-term uh, commitment. So you, I think you need something that's strong enough to stand by itself and isn't you know, subject to the, the, the vagaries of economic cycles. Jim, do you agree with Kieran's uh, assertion that, that Quilcia should have some commercial focus too? Absolutely. I mean, nobody can deny that we still need a, a, you know, a timber industry. There's undoubtedly a demand and a requirement for softwood. So I don't think anybody's trying to completely extinguish uh, what Quilcha does. And as, as Kieran has said, you know, it, it, Quilcha follows government policies. Its two ministers are effectively the two shareholders of the company. Uh, and they could direct Quilcha absolutely to plant nothing but, but broadleaves. Um, 
but the, the reality of the situation is softwood timber is required um, and I don't think there's the, you know anybody who wants to completely convert Quilcha away from that um, you know that, that that market niche will have to be filled and it'll only end up being filled by uh, imports. You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk. I'm talking to Kieran Fallon, Marina, Marina Conway and Jim Lawler about the future of forestry in Ireland. And I'm curious to hear from all of you. In recent years, we've started to see some public opposition to forestry in places like County Leitrim. It's, it's reminded me a lot of the, the small anti-wind uh, backlash that we saw uh, when, when wind turbines started to be put up around the country. And I'm just wondering how much this might be contributing to our failure to achieve national forestry targets. So Marina, maybe we'll start with you. Um, yeah, I mean, there definitely has been um, areas and communities who feel that um, that they're that they're um, taking an unfair or an unfair amount of the load of uh, conifer forestry in certain parts of the country, in Leitrim in particular. And I think um, I think a lot of it stemmed out of Leitrim at the time when the, the farmer rate of premium was was taken away in 2015 and. Um, it opened up the market um, substantially for forest land and, and um, land prices for forestry went up overnight, which made it anti-competitive with a lot of local farmers and, and it created a lot of issues. Um, so I really think that that needs to be looked at. And I, and I think, you know, I mean, as um, the minister recently launched Project Woodland, which is to look at a whole forestry strategy for the whole country and like people, People do feel that certain parts of the country um, are taking an unfair share of the national afforestation targets. And I think that that's something that has to be, you know, very seriously looked at. Um, but at the same time, people should have that flexibility with regard to their land use, people who want to get into trees. And we spoke earlier about balance. And I believe it's definitely, it is about balance. And my experience to date with farmers has been that they're the ones who were quite happy to plant portions of their lands in commercial forestry. They also want native woodland. They also might look at doing an area of commercial oak. So they're the ones in my experience to date who have been, you know, have been quite innovative in their approach to forestry. And they like to see a mix. They like to see it blend in with their farm so that it provides shelter, um, it provides amenity, and that it also will have a wood productive function. We, we recently had a landowner who, who planted um, a substantial part of his farm due to the fact that, you know, which, which is the same story for a lot of them, his children have all been educated and they're not necessarily interested in, in coming home, you know, they're not going to come home and, and work on the farm. So for him, he very much looked at this, he's very passionate about trees um, and loves native woodland, but he knew that this also had to provide a return for him. So he looked at establishing approximately half of his land in commercial conifers and then half of it in native woodland. So th there is a balance, I think, that, that really needs to be struck there, Cara. Kieran, would Quill should be experiencing similar uh, obstacles in terms of public acceptance of forestry, or is it not an issue for a semi-state company? No, it, it, it absolutely is. I mean, uh, in the past, I mean, forestry levels were so low that they didn't really attract uh, people's attention. But now it's becoming uh, an important area and uh, climate change and biodiversity loss are, are in people's uh, minds. So uh, absolutely. And I think it's all it all links back to uh, what Jim and Marina were speaking about earlier on about and you know the, the regulatory system in my mind is really just uh, sort of a symptom of um, of, of a, a, another issue, and the other issue is I suppose is this kind of um, contested view about what forestry should be in the future, and that you know the fact that people have uh, uh, you know different views on that uh, it means that it has become uh, it's become a hot area, and for that reason I think. You know what we really are missing more than anything else is sort of a vision for forestry where are we taking this uh you know conversation about what we want it to be in the future and you mentioned the the wind uh cara uh debates and i would add to that water in the past where you know uh, we didn't have that big discussion on where we're going and this conversation about where we want this to go and instead you, you get resistance because people haven't bought into it so i think you know, there's a really interesting piece of work, uh, I think, to be done around just saying, what do we want to do with this uh, this sector? What do we, what do we want from it? Um, 
uh, what, what balance is the right balance? And from that, I think if you resolve that, then downstream, all these very important things that Jim and Marina have spoken about around regulatory obstacles, they're downstream of that and they will flow from that if you resolve that big upper question. We see vision documents being produced all the time on things like food wise and food harvest. And, you know, they're always about 10 years ahead in terms of their vision for food production. Is there no similar vision document or policy for forestry? Uh, not in my mind. I mean, there are there are uh, there, there are policy documents, uh, but I don't think we've had a really clear one for I think maybe forty years. Uh, I think we've had uh, documents that are, are are you know sort of one for everyone in the audience. They say everything about everything, but they don't actually clearly call what we want to do. And I think it's I think there's a, a public appetite for that, and I think there's. There seems to be political will for that at the moment, and I think it could be really great uh, to kind of unlock this whole sector, which, as as the other guests have said, it, it's not working for anybody at the moment, not for, you know, commercial foresters, farmers, environmentalists, or any stakeholder. So it, I think it could be a powerful way of uh, unlocking that and moving forward. But it would need, as you say, it can't just be pages, it would need to be a real document with real intent and real vision. Jim, do you think if maybe we focused much more on native woodland, we would be able to address this issue of public acceptance better? And that perhaps it's this emphasis on monoculture that has has really upset the public. I think certainly there's a there's a there's potential in that. I think some people will still um, have an issue with you know their entire neighbourhood being completely blanketed with trees. It's unfortunate for us that that's you know we would still like to see a, a huge uplift in the amount of woodland cover in the, in the country. I think the European average is about forty percent, so we're still so so far behind mainland Europe in that respect. Anyway, um, but I think you know I have seen one of our former directors of our organisation himself. His home in Leitrim was completely surrounded by uh, just pure Sitka spruce, and it absolutely buried his home. There was no light, and of course because they're 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 uh, evergreen trees. Um, there's never any light um, it impacted the water in, in the wells, that sort of stuff. So I think one of the difficulties we, we're all going to have is that the perception perhaps is not just that it's about conifers versus broadleaves, it's trees that you, you basically you're taking farms out of production. And um, maybe it's, it's traditionally been a sign of dereliction, dereliction of a farm that uh, uh, it's taken over by trees because the, the, the land isn't being farmed. So I think we need a kind of a cultural shift in the country as well. Um, in terms of, you know, this country was once covered in woodland. We had very much a woodland culture. You know, our alphabet, the Ohm alphabet that had its, its twinning with the, the different species of trees and so on. We were very much a woodland people. And it's actually a part of our native culture that we've lost as well. It would be great just to see, a, a, um, you know, our attitudes toward trees and forests in general uh, changed. Marina, I, I'm under the impression that a lot of these Sitka spruce trees that have been planted in the last couple of decades are, are going to be ready for harvest soon. So is market an issue for some of the farmers and landowners you're dealing with? Do they have a place where they can sell these trees effectively? Um, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's no issue with market for, um, for coniferous trees and for Sitka spruce in particular. Where, where there probably is more of, of an issue uh, and a concern for farmers, if, if and especially because, as I said earlier, it, is all, it has been my experience that farmers are more inclined to diversify within their land owning, within their farm enterprise, and within their forest. So it's more of a concern for, for other conifers, for more diverse conifers like um, pines and firs, as well as for um, broadleaves. That's an area that that I actually would be more concerned about um, having capacity within the sector for that. And I always felt that that was something that would evolve um, as the as the trees matured. And unfortunately, a lot of that was was kind of built around ash. And we've had ash dieback come in since, which is, has decimated our, our beloved ash. But um, I would be more concerned for um, for markets and for capacity with broadleaves, because at the moment for thinnings and for any kind of and um, work you do within any broadleaf woodland or native woodland, it's, it's mainly all going to firewood, um, firewood markets. So I will be concerned for that. Um, and just, just one other thing I'd just like to add about the native woodlands is that um, whereas there is um, you know, a good premium and a grant for native woodlands, I also think that, um, that there should be a greater reward that we need to look at all the additional ecosystem services that native woodlands provide. So for a landowner getting involved in native woodland and, and you get the payment for 15 years, 
for for some of them it's a bitter pill to swallow that 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 really that they're giving they're giving their land to nature let's say and it's not that they don't mind doing that but that there is forest provides so much more than just than just sequestering carbon they also as we know protect the soil and they protect the water and they create these really important habitats for wildlife and for biodiversity um, as well as as you know they can have a, a timber production function as well but I think that we really need to look at, at trying to monetize these ecosystem services um, in the long term for landowners to really embrace um, more native and broadleaf woodland and then we really need as, as a as a whole industry we really need to look at alternatives or to look at ways to create um, an industry there or a market for broadleaves because at the moment because the majority of our industry has been focused around around software production that's where the markets lie um, and I think there, there really is is a we need to do a lot of work there. Well as someone who's not a landowner but is very interested in trees and likes forests. I'm always interested in ways that someone like me or our listeners could engage in the issues around forestry. And Jim, Native Woodland Trust has a citizen science project to try and help protect our remaining native forests. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so we have a, a, the ideal desk-based project running at the moment for, uh, for lockdown. Uh, we're basically using uh, maps to try and identify old and ancient woodland. So it's called the search for ancient and long established woodland. Um, so we're basically just using uh, modern satellite images overlaid with uh, ordnance survey maps that go back to the start of the 19th century. So we're trying to find woodlands that are not currently documented per se, um, that, that stretch back at least those 200 years. Um, and then uh, as, we, um, as we identify all of those, we whittle down into uh, targets likely woodlands that may be ancient, ancient being uh, uh, have existed here continuously since at least 1600 before which, um, you know, uh, uh, trees typically weren't imported into the country. So these are the original uh, native Irish trees um, descended from those that, that colonized Ireland after the Ice Age. And these are really, really crucially important woodlands. And we're also trying to identify planted ancient woodlands. So there are undoubtedly, and we have found some already, uh, ancient woodlands that have been planted uh, with conifers, uh, with commercial forestry. And we've seen the experience in even our close neighbour in, in, in Britain that if those uh, conifers are removed sensitively, uh, the woodland can come back. There's a huge seed bank there. You'll often get lots and lots of rare species of flowers and orchids and so on can actually um, restore themselves into that woodland if it is, if it is, uh, if the tree cover is brought back sensitively. So a bit of exploring to do in my 20 kilometre radius for the next couple of months. My thanks to Marina Conway, Kieran Fallon and Jim Lawler for joining the conversation on Down to Earth. Up next, we'll find out how a Monday asset management company is helping to reforest County Wicklow. Down to Earth on News Talk with a Monday. An asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. The wonderful Peter Gabriel there was shaking the tree. I don't know if we'll find him shaking the tree, but Professor Michael Mann will certainly have a lot to say about climate deniers when I talk to him about his green life. But before that, an unlikely player in the forestry sector, my next guest is head of retail distribution in Ireland for Amundi. Graham Fox is here to tell me about a new project they're launching to reforest land in Wicklow with native tree species to help combat climate change and biodiversity damage. Welcome, Graham. Hey, Cara. How are things? Great. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. First of all, Amundi is the sponsor of this series of Down to Earth. So can you start by explaining Amundi's general interest in environmental issues and why you would, would sponsor a show like Down to Earth? Yeah, of course. First, it's, it, look, it's been a pleasure to be involved uh, with sponsoring the show. First and foremost, Cara, it's, it's a really good show. It's excellent. Oh, um, it's good up to you and you and the team. Um, you know, you're, the platform you've created, uh, the diversity of topic in the area of climate action, you know, that, that's really a strong uh, part of what we do as a company as well. But, but as, a, as an aside, um, it's one of my go-to podcasts on my lockdown walks. So uh, you've, you've been keeping me very uh, up to date in the whole area over the, la of the last year or so as well. But, but from Amundi as a company, um, 
the reason we would look to partner uh, with initiatives like this and shows like this is because responsible investing is at the forefront of what we do. It's one of the founding pillars of what our business was built on. And maybe just to give your listeners, when I say responsible investing, what, what does that actually mean? Well, uh, responsible investing for us is about engaging and investing in companies that are trying to do good by the world, make it a better place. But not just about the world and the environment, but also people as well. And that's, that's, that's a hugely important part of, of, of what we do as a, as a business. And it might be worth giving um, your listeners a quick intro just to, to who Amundi are. We're the largest asset manager in Europe. And interestingly, we've been on the ground in Ireland for over 22 years now. And we have uh, 350 employees working in uh, George's Key. So we actually have a, a massive presence in the Irish market. So been associated with this show, been associated with um, the whole topic and conversation around climate action is, is, is hugely important for us. So this week on Down to Earth, we've been discussing forestry on the show, and Amundi has recently launched a native woodlands project in Wicklow to plant five hectares with native tree species. So that's not something you usually expect an asset management company to undertake. Where did the inspiration come from to do this? Yeah, what I would say, Cara, is Hopefully your listeners will get a, a kind of a, a kind of idea that as a company we don't like to just talk the talk and and I think that's probably you know when you think about it we we engage with companies all the time we invest in companies to try and see can they improve the way they do their business can they reduce plastic usage etc but we like to walk the walk ourselves and one of the key things for us is being able to give back in the locations we're located in right across the world. And this project and this initiative is to basically support the planting of 12 to 15,000 native trees in a beautiful part of the world uh, at the foothills of the Cadian Mountain in Wicklow. And it's important to us that they're native trees as well, um, Cara. When you look at the forestry coverage in Ireland, there's about 11% of Ireland is covered in forestry, but only only 2% of that are actually native trees. And that's, that's obviously a, a hugely important part of trying to increase the native tree coverage uh, right across Ireland as well. So I found when dealing with companies that there's usually some champion inside a company that's driving, uh, you know, these kind of sustainability projects. Would you be that champion? And are you particularly interested in these kind of issues yourself? I'd like to think I am. <laughs> um, I am uh, genuinely. I'm very passionate about this whole area, the whole area of responsible investing. Um, I, I, my grandparents were farmers, so from a very early age, I grew up with a kind of an appreciation of the of nature and and the life cycle of things when we come to our environment and how we interact with our environment as well. So, yes, uh, personally, I'm very, very interested in this area. But within work and within the company, within a Monday, we have lots of different champions, especially in this space. We do lots of different things and um, different initiatives, especially in the in our Ireland office here. Like for example, we we uh, all have eco-friendly coffee cups. We don't use plastic in our offices here where there's no plastic coffee cups. And um, we recycle our coffee capsules, small little things. But we, we all, as a, as a business here in Ireland, try to improve the way we, we, we interact with our environment as well. You mentioned responsible investing at the beginning. And, you know, Amundi is a huge multinational company. And the scale of change we need to address these kind of environmental challenges goes far beyond plastic straws and coffee cups while they're all yeah. good to do. So what big changes is a Monday making with respect to responsible investing? Are you divesting? Are you making sure that you're not investing in, in fossil fuel companies or extractive industries? Exactly. Well, that's, that's been something we've, we've, we've always been doing. It's something we've always been improving on. Like we have over 378 billion uh, of assets in responsible investing. And our plan uh, by the end of this year is to increase that substantially. We have a, a massive um project which is uh, in in process with this whole area of responsible investing but we engage quite quite heavily with uh, companies cara as you can imagine being the largest asset manager in Europe, we actually appear on the uh, shareholder registry of a lot of companies. So we get we get very very good airtime with the CEOs and the CFOs, and we're and we're constantly driving for change. Whether that's reducing the use of plastic in their manufacturing processes, whether it's uh, equalities and gender diversity on boards, 
it's something that we do quite a, quite a lot and it's core. It's a core part of what we do as a business as well. My thanks to Graham Fox of Amundi for contributing to this episode of Down to Earth and for his loyal listenership throughout the series. Coming up next, Professor Michael Mann for My Green Life, where he'll tell us how he stood up in the face of climate deniers for over 20 years. Down to Earth on News Talk with Amundi, an asset manager investing in tomorrow, today, to shape a better world for all. Each week here on Down to Earth, we dig into someone's green life, finding out how they integrate environmental issues into their everyday lives. But today, my guest's life has been pretty much consumed by the climate crisis since the 1990s, when he began research to reconstruct Earth's climate over the past 1,000 years. Professor Michael Mann has gone on to publish more than 200 research articles on climate change and several books, including his most recent one, The New Climate War, which I'm very much enjoying at the moment. And he now joins us from Pennsylvania State University. Welcome, Mike. Uh, Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. It's great to hear you. Mike, your famous graph showing how our climate was warming exponentially since the start of the Industrial Revolution, which was warmly referred to as the hockey stick graph because of its shape, it really plunged you into the limelight relatively early in your career. At the time that you published that research in 1999, were you surprised by those findings or did you expect the media attention that it received? Yeah, you know, I, I didn't expect um, the, the the amount of attention it got. Uh, when we were doing that work, and as we were sort of preparing uh, a draft of that article, and we were taking into account the reviewer comments, um, one of the reviewers of our article said, you know, you should really um, plot the, the temperature, the, the, the global temperature, uh, along with the, the recent temperatures, so we can see you know, how unusual recent warming is in this long-term context. So originally our work wasn't even really focused on the hockey stick per se. It was a reviewer comment that um, led to us sort of emphasizing that particular result. Uh, It was published on Earth Day, 1998, uh, April 22nd. So we're coming up on the 23rd anniversary. And I think because of uh, Earth Day and because of the increased prominence that the issue of climate change was receiving at the time in the late 1990s, it was, if you'll forgive the expression, sort of a perfect storm of things that came together. Um, You know, it was the warmest year on record at that point. 1998 had been an unusually warm year. Um, uh, And we had seen, in fact, a number of uh, extremely warm years. All of that came together and it ended up, uh, I think, sort of uh, the, I think the hockey stick, that graph sort of captured people's attention in a way that the science of climate change, the sort of more cerebral climate science um, that had been published in the past hadn't quite done uh, because the graph told a simple story. You didn't need to understand the workings of Earth's climate system, the intricacies of our climate system, to understand what that graph was telling us, um, that uh, this warming we're seeing really is unprecedented uh, as far back as we could go. And so it did sort of quickly become an icon uh, in the climate change debate, and it also became a target for climate change deniers uh, looking to discredit this hockey stick, this iconic graph. Absolutely. I I mean, it is a really shocking image that I still use today to communicate humans' influence on climate change. And you were only doing this as part of postdoctoral research just after your PhD. So did you welcome that kind of media attention so early in your career? (laughs) You know, um, any scientist, uh, to be perfectly honest, loves it when their work gets attention. (laughs) We we, we do, you know, we do what we do because we think it's important and we want to share it with other people. we sort of like to geek out on, on our science. It's just part of, I think, being a scientist. And so I think any scientist who tells you that they don't appreciate attention for, for their scientific work is, is, is probably not being straight with you. <laughs> um, it, it, it is gratifying. Um, but I, I wasn't prepared for you know, the, uh, the frenzy of attention that it got uh, again coming out on Earth Day. And who knows, you know, the journal Nature may have sort of uh, planned it out that way. Um, published it on on that particular date um, to sort of play into the the media narrative, the the coverage that climate change was increasingly getting. And so, yeah, it was it was nice to get that attention. It was great to have an opportunity to explain my science and its implications to the public. And that was really my first opportunity to to do that in the in sort of the media that um, that 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 arose. 
Mike, we've advanced our understanding of climate change a lot over the past two or three decades since you started working on this topic and because of other amazing scientists. Has climate change and its associated impacts played out as you predicted? Well, in some respects, um, it's worse than we predicted. And that's what's so sobering to us because we have been issuing this warning literally for decades now. I mean, the IPCC back in the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change back in 1995 issued the conclusion that there was now a discernible human influence uh, on our planet, on our climate. Um, there are scientists who had actually argued uh, earlier than that, James Hansen, uh, back in 1989, argued that we could already see the effect of human-caused warming. And so we issued these warming, warnings decades ago. Uh, even ExxonMobil, in their own internal documents, and I talk about this in, in my book, The New Climate War, um, in their internal documents back in the early 1980s actually referred to the potential consequences of continued fossil fuel burning as catastrophic. Those aren't my words. Those aren't the words of uh, Al Gore. Those are the words of ExxonMobil's own scientists. And so we knew about this problem decades ago. And it's frustrating to those of us who, who've been trying to communicate not just the science and the impacts. You describe that action by ExxonMobil as the most immoral act in human history in your book, The New Climate War. And, you know, you also mentioned that now full-blown denialism has been essentially disproved, I think, by the impacts of climate change because we're witnessing yeah. it firsthand. And you talk about this new war that involves deflection and disinformation campaigns. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, so the old war, as it were, um, which was this assault by companies like ExxonMobil um, for decades uh, who, you know, uh, funded uh, front groups and organizations and even uh, hired uh, scientists with impressive credentials to act as advocates for them in undermining uh, public faith in the science of climate change um, and convincing the public and policymakers that climate change um, is essentially a, a hoax, that it's not real. And this was as their own scientists in internal reports were showing that they already recognized the, the problem. Uh, meanwhile, the company actually got rid of that division. ExxonMobil got rid of that scientific division and instead you know, spent tens of millions of dollars in a massive disinformation campaign to discredit the, uh, the, the science and to, to discredit uh, uh, the work of scientists. So that, um, you know, that that was the old climate war. And it's just not tenable anymore, because you can't convince the public that climate change is a hoax when they see it, when they see it playing out. And, and we've seen the devastating impacts in Ireland, and in Europe, and in North America, and in Australia, where I was last year on sabbatical during what they called the Black Summer, where bushfires uh, blanketed the, the entire continent. Um, you know, it's just not credible to deny that climate change um, is happening and that we're seeing impacts of climate change. So the forces of inaction, I call them the inactivists in the book, the fossil fuel interests and those doing their bidding, the media outlets, conservative media outlets and, and uh, politicians who, who do their bidding, they, they recognize that, um, you know, the, the old tactics don't work anymore, but they, they're not going to roll over. They're not going to give up. They still want to keep us addicted to fossil fuels. Every year we remain addicted to fossil fuels. They continue to make billions of dollars in profits. And so what they're trying to do now is if they can't stop the, the transition away from fossil fuels towards uh, renewable energy, um, at least they're going to try to slow it down. You're listening to Down to Earth on News Talk, and my guest is Professor Michael Mann talking about his green life and his new book, The New Climate War. Mike, you claim to have some tough love for climate activists. I couldn't <laughs> help but think you were talking about me, and you're saying that some of us may be unwittingly playing into the hands of climate deniers. So what would you like to see climate activists doing, and, and maybe what are we doing wrong? Well, no, it, it's certainly not you, because look, you, what are you, you're out here doing everything you can to communicate the climate crisis to the public, and that's what we need to be doing. So my, my, Thank you very much. <laughs> my, my hat off to you. Uh, and, um, you know, really uh, what I'm talking about are, you know, there are some folks, good-hearted uh, people with the best of intentions, the, the best of motives, 
but they've bought into some of the unhelpful framing, framing that is promoted by bad actors. So um, we know there are some bad actors who literally are trying to convince us that it's too late to act. Um, again, because if we believe it's too late to act, then you know it potentially leads to disengagement. Uh, and so to some, you know, it, it's rather ironic that some of the sort of doom and despair that is being promoted, um, and I document this in the book, is in fact being promoted by bad actors who want to lead us to disengagement. They don't care how they do it. They don't care if it's because we think it's a hoax or we think it's too late to actually do anything about it. What's so pernicious about this particular tactic is that it's really focused on the very people who would be out on the front lines demanding action, people who would be pushing um, for action if it were not for the fact that they've become disengaged, disillusioned, fallen into despair. And, you know, in some cases that that leads to, um, you know, inaction, withdrawal, um, withdrawing from the, you know, the, 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 the policy debate, um, the policy sphere. Um, and so I think what's important is for us to recognize that, um, you know, the folks who, who have sort of fallen uh, for that fallacy, and it is a fallacy, let me be very clear. These doomist narratives that have taken hold are premised on some distortions of the science that are really as bad as the distortions of the science by climate change deniers. Uh, there's one very well-known protagonist um, in sort of the the climate doomism movement who insists that it is too late to stop runaway warming and that we and all life on earth will be extinct within 10 years. And by the way, he said that about five years ago. So I guess it's five years now. Um, <laughs> mark that on your calendar. That is so unhelpful, but it's wrong. The science in no way supports that sort of scenario. And unfortunately, some people buy into that. They buy into the doomist uh, narratives that follow from those uh, scenarios. And, you know, and, and, and they, they have become disengaged. Um, what we need to do to those folks, again, most of them are, are, are good-hearted, well-intentioned uh, people, um, and they've sort of been weaponized by bad actors into this sort of disengagement. We've got to help them out of that. You, We've got you to, mentioned there that, you know, yeah. the carbon footprinting and this sort of behavior shaming around dietary and travel choices. Um, but I also recently read an, an op-ed that you wrote where you, where you said that we sometimes deal with politicians, for example, with all stick all the time and no carrots. Yeah. So how do you think we should be, as, as ordinary citizens who care about climate change, how do you think we should be engaging with our politicians? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, so, you know, no question, um, you know, uh, we have to take uh, policymakers to task when, you know, they're not representing our interests. Uh, they're instead doing the bidding of the polluting interests, uh, the fossil fuel industry. And there are far too many politicians um, in the United States. You, you've seen it in, in Ireland as well, um, uh, I I everywhere. Uh, that um, have become part of the problem rather than part of the solution. And uh, it's great to see folks like Greta Thunberg. You were talking about sort of the, in, we're getting on this like individual action versus uh, systemic change. And Greta is a great example because she does try to lead by example. She does you know, try to set an example when it comes to our own carbon footprint. And that's good and that's important. We should all do everything we can to reduce our carbon footprint, but we shouldn't use that as an excuse for holding policymakers accountable for the, the systemic changes that we can't make as individuals. We can change our lifestyle, but we can't, you know, uh, put a price on carbon as individuals. We can't provide subsidies for the renewable energy industry as individuals. We can't block new fossil fuel infrastructure, um, pipelines and, and coal mines as individuals, we need our politicians to do that. And so we need, sure, in our everyday lives, let's lead by example. Let's not finger point and shame each other. Let's help to set a positive example to bring everyone along uh, towards a more carbon friendly lifestyle. That's important, but that is no substitute for holding opinion leaders and policymakers and, um, and, and influentials responsible for the policies to help us collectively transition away from fossil fuels. And, and nobody does a 
better than Greta Thunberg when it comes to uh, speaking truth to power and calling out bad actors who are not acting on our behalf, who are instead acting as agents for polluting interests. The journalist Bill McKibben described you in, in the foreword of your book by saying, few people bear more scars from the climate wars than Michael Mann. And reading through the decades of attacks that you received by fossil fuel interests and their associated climate denial groups, it's really, it's heartbreaking for me to, to just read that, let alone for you to experience it. Um, and you mentioned that you thought that the fossil fuel industry thought you were easy prey, um, that these attacks might silence you. So what drove you all this time to keep speaking out when you, you could have done what a lot of scientists do, which is just hide in the ivory tower and and publish journal articles um and and what keeps you going and gives you hope to to keep speaking out yeah thanks well you know i'm, I'm attacked so often you know i barely notice anymore um it's an old <laughs> joke from the, the blues brothers uh one of my favorite films um no i mean it, the the fact is that it, you know i guess to some extent it's my personality and, and people who know me well <laughs> Uh, we'll, we'll probably confirm that for you. Um, I, I am sort of a, a fighter. Um, I fight back. Um, and my instinct when I was attacked by, you know, the fossil fuel industry and the front groups um, and, the, and the paid uh, advocates that they've hired to uh, attack climate science and to attack scientists like myself. Um, and of course, when we published the, the hockey stick curve, Two decades ago, I quickly found myself in the, at the center of those uh, concerted attacks, and and I chose to fight back. And I chose and and I recognized that the best way to fight back, you know, it's the old adage: um, the best defense is a good offense. By being the most effective advocate I could be for the science, and for following the science, and for you know science-based policy discourse. By being the best advocate I could be for those things, um, that was really the best way to uh, push back against the attacks and the efforts to undermine my science and my credibility. And ironically, you know, my detractors sort of provided me with a platform now that I would not have had. And I have come to embrace that platform. I've come to embrace you know, this privilege that I have to be in a position to really influence this conversation about the greatest challenge we face as a civilization. So I've embraced that role. And though it isn't what I signed up for, you know, when I double majored in applied math and physics as an undergraduate, I didn't think I was signing up for a life of political activism. But ultimately, that's sort of where I found myself, and I've embraced that. And so, well, we're going to you know, have was... to learn to channel some of that. If you can figure out how to bottle it too, that would be great. If you could send it over, <laughs> my thanks. Well, for... We all have it. We all have it in us, um, and we all just have to find our own inner voice and our own way of making a difference. My thanks to Professor Michael Mann for letting us into his green life and for his heroic efforts to understand and solve the climate crisis over many years. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to talk with you. And that's it for this episode of Down to Earth. Thank you for listening. And thanks to my producer, Alex Rousseau, for this episode of Down to Earth. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the series on podcast at Newstalk.com or on the Newstalk app. Tune in next week and we'll find out if Ireland can bend the curve in addressing the climate crisis. But until then, stay curious.